a time where we really think about focus on coming out of winter into the new life. I mean, the trees behind us are just, they've already changed. They've gone from white to green already. It's, uh, yeah, if you're like me, better have a Kleenex close right now. My car's getting covered in green. It's just a sign of new life. Today we're going to start a new series. It's hard to believe Easter's two weeks from today, but it is. And we're going to start a new series on death to life. Oh, hey, by the way, I wanted to follow up from those uh, who were with us last week or saw us online last week. Um, uh, my grandkids are back in town. I turn around Friday night. Guess what we're having for dinner? Dang right we are. <laughs> Once again, just thought I'd follow up for those of you who are here. If you weren't here last week, you missed all the fun, but... It says in Mark 16 this, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples. This truth of Jesus from death to life, this reality, this history, this story that's more than a story, changes everything. Several years ago, I came in contact with a clinical psychologist, well, not personally, I probably could use one, but um, a clinical psychologist from Canada by the name of Jordan Peterson. Uh, Jordan Peterson had written a book called 12 Rules of Life, um, Overcoming Chaos. Um, <clears throat> when I first read his book, the rule is very simple, so to speak, but then the discussion of it is very complex. He uses a mix of philosophy, ancient mythology, biblical stories, um, it, it, and experience, life experience. They're, they're, they're simple rules, really. I mean, like, stand up tall with your shoulders held back. It's kind of like the make your bed every morning kind of rules. Um, one of my favorite was... Uh, um, this is an exact wording, but this is how I took it was, don't raise kids that you don't like. <laughs> you know, just kind of like you're responsible for raising your kids. Um, other, other rules along those lines that are, are, are very simple but very hard and very complex. It fascinated me how many biblical examples that Peterson would use throughout his discussions. What's even more amazing to me was in the days that followed, how many 20 to early 30-something young men started both reading Peterson, and he became a YouTube sensation. Uh, he would debate people really all over the world uh, concerning really self-discipline, uh, being responsible for your life. Um, Peterson over the years has more or less... Uh, he was raised in a Christian home, but over the years, he has more or less 
said he's not sure there is a God. Uh, he, he basically has said he's not Christian, doesn't know if there's a God, just, just isn't sure. Um, and at the same time, he acknowledges through both history and mythology and literature this continuing story about how someone lays down their life and then comes back to life. He talks about ancient mythology. Um, he talks about uh, Lord of the Rings, Gandalf. Uh, he talks about Harry Potter, uh, what Harry did. He talks about all of these different stories and he talks about how these stories have impacted our perception. But he sees morality, something more that's evolutionary than is something that is an absolute truth that emanates from God. That would be my take on, his, on reading his material. For as good as it is, it lacks something. Over the past year, Peterson has experienced a, a number of personal tragedies. His wife uh, has cancer. Uh, he was, um, uh, came, had a negative reaction to an antidepressant medication that he also became addicted to, ended up in a hospital in an induced coma for a number of weeks uh, before this uh, second book, 12 more rules. By the way, he had 12 rules, now he's got 12 more. My understanding is he's got 48 rules total that he's eventually going to ride on. This past week, I saw an interview with Peterson that was done like two weeks earlier. I, it was around March 1st, March 2nd of this year, an interview uh, done with something else. Now, let me just say, as you watch two minutes of this interview, that he talks different than us. I mean, both his vocabulary, the rhythm of his voice, because he's Canadian. Um, anyway, the rhythm of his voice. But there's one part I want you to hear. He talks about narrative and objective. Narrative is story, mythology. Objective is reality. You with me so far? Story, reality. He's going to talk about that and just watch what occurs. This particular critic that I've been reading said, well, that, that doesn't differentiate Christ much from a whole sequence of dying and resurrecting mythological gods. And of course, people have made that claim in comparative religion. Joseph Campbell did that, and Jung to a lesser degree, I would say, but Campbell did that. But the difference, and C.S. Lewis pointed this out as well, the difference between those mythological gods and Christ was that there's a there's a representation of, there's a historical representation of his, of, of his existence as well. Now you can debate whether or not that's genuine. You can debate about whether or not he actually lived and whether there's credible objective evidence for that, but it doesn't matter in some sense because this, well, it does, but there's a sense in which it doesn't matter because there's still a historical story. And so what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who actually lived plus a myth and in some sense, Christ is the union of those two things. The problem is, is I probably believe that, but I don't okay. know. I don't, I'm amazed at my own belief and I don't <laughs> understand it. Like, because I've seen. Sometimes. 
the objective world and the narrative world touch. You know, that's union synchronicity. And I've seen that many times in my own life. And so in some sense, I believe it's undeniable. You know, we have a narrative sense of the world. For me, that's been the world of morality. That's the world that tells us how to act. It's real, like we treat it like it's real. It's not the objective world. But the narrative and the objective world touch. And the ultimate example of that in principle is supposed to be Christ. But I don't know what to, I'm, that seems to me oddly plausible. Yeah. Well, but I still don't know what to make of it. It's too, partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. If you believed in the story of Christ or if you believed that history and, and let's say the narrative make meet, let's Both, say. I think. Yeah. I think you, because when you believe that, you buy both those stories. You believe that yeah. the narrative and the objective can actually touch. Yeah. It's obvious to me he's struggling with what if this was real? What if this story, this narrative story and objective reality touch. I, I hope you'll pray for him. I think he's on, that God is drawing him to this re reality. Others of great intellect have over the years struggled with some of the same ideas. C.S. Lewis, for example, uh, had this writing, which I've read to you before. He says, he was talking to his friend Tolkien and he said to him, when you read the old myths, the old stories, it almost makes you feel like there really is truth. There really is a right and wrong. There really is a heaven and a hell. But myths are lies, though breathed through silver. That was his statement before he became a Christian in a book he wrote after he became a Christian called Myth Becomes Fact. It was a conversation that Tolkien had with him. And Tolkien's position was that these myths all are repeating themselves and they seem right. There's some element of it because it's based on what Tolkien called the, the one true myth, the meta-narrative of history. By myth, he doesn't mean fiction, he means story. That the true story of Jesus is reflected in all of these other stories because it's hidden deep in our heart. It was one of the things that draw, drew Lewis to Christianity, is his study of ancient mythology and story and language. And Here's my point to us today. Jesus' resurrection is a reality that changes everything. Everything. Paul in Ephesians, he, he talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he said, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I try to move through what we've already discussed in the past weeks, but it's this. Before Christ, you were dead spiritually. 
You weren't like, like on life support. You weren't where somebody could pound on your chest and bring you back. You were dead. Dead. Dead is dead, right? You were dead. You can look at the people around you. You were dead. You know, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were spiritually dead. How did you become alive? God, in his mercy, made you alive. He made you alive. It's by grace you've been saved. How did he make you alive? He made you alive because the power that raised Jesus from the dead touched you and made you alive and has forgiven your sins and has breathed. God breathed into man and he became a life-filled creature. God breathed the resurrection breath of Christ into you and you became spiritually alive. We simply receive. Here's the, the truth we have to realize. No physical resurrection of Jesus, no spiritual life for me. It's that truth. Everything is predicated on the resurrection. Everything is predicated on the truth that Christ was physically, not metaphorically, not even merely spiritually, he was physically raised from the dead. And because of that, that power, God raised us up with Christ. You get it? If he's not raised, we're not raised. Raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is essential to the Christian faith. It's essential to your faith and my faith. We have to receive the resurrected Jesus to receive spiritual life. Again, I, I could go through this, but this is critical because I think there are a lot of people like Peterson in church who have received the narrative but not the objective, as he talks about. They've received the story. They know the story. I like the story about Jesus, his moral teaching, his changing of the world. Peterson writes in some books, his first 12 rules of life, that Christianity changed the world. That without Christianity, we would not have the culture in which we now dwell. But culture has outgrown Christianity. We've moved beyond it. It was necessary, but now we move beyond it. And I think what you see in this video clip is this element of, wait a minute, culture may, but I haven't. This changes everything for, for me. If you're here today, you've been in church your entire life, but you've never fully received the resurrected Christ as the one who leads your life and forgives your sins, the truth of the Bible is you're still spiritually dead. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter... Uh, how many good deeds you do. It doesn't matter if you feed the poor. It doesn't matter if you give all your money to the poor. It doesn't matter if you go visit people in prison. It doesn't matter all the acts you do until you receive the objective reality that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's clear in the book of Acts. It's clear in both what Jesus said and his followers that we have to receive the resurrected Jesus. It is the grace of God it's not that we did. He raised Jesus from the dead. But in receiving it, you come to life. That's number one. 
so to speak. You, come, you go from death to life. Now that you're alive, how does the resurrection impact you? So many times we think of the resurrection as merely what happened then to get me in, not what's happening now in my life. So for, I think most people in this building right now, maybe I, I doubt it's 100%, very seriously, I doubt it's 100%, that everybody in this room is spiritually alive and has received Jesus, the resurrected Jesus is the one who leads their life and forgives their sins. Even in a people of 100, you need to receive him. It can, it, today's the day of salvation. For those of you who are, and I would say the vast, vast, vast majority of the people in this room have, here's what Paul prays to a people in a church that he established, that he knows are followers of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to keep returning to this, these verses um, over and over again. Um, Mary Jo, would you go back one? I, I got a little excited there. And, and, um he raised us up with Christ, seated us heavenly realms. That, I, was, I was on track. Okay, here's back in Ephesians 1. Go back one chapter. He's talking to the church. He's praying for the church. And he says this. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. I'm remembering, remembering you in all my prayers. Okay, he's praying for the church in Ephesus saying, I'm giving thanks. I heard about your, what? Faith in the Lord. So he's saying, I know you, these are followers. He's not writing to the uninitiated. He's not writing to the, to the lost. And he gives thanks for them, remembering them in all my prayers. He goes on, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you can know him better. Again, spirit of wisdom, revelation, for what purpose? Know him better. We all need to know him better, right? We, wanna, we, we know him, but we want to know him better. We walk in faith, but we want to walk in greater faith. I believe, help my unbelief. I, I want to walk in a greater level of faith, a greater relationship with God. And he says this, I pray. And these are, again, I keep saying this, but I want you to, because I'm speaking to mostly Christians here, He's, he's speaking to Christians. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Christians, followers of Jesus, I, I, I'm praying for you that your spiritual eyes would be opened, enlightened. Why? In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. I'm keep coming back to this verse. These are key verses for us as fullness, as fullness Christian Fellowship. It's foundational for who we are as a church. We're praying that the eyes of our heart would be opened and the, our eyes of the heart of every person who walks through these doors would be opened. Why? So that they can know this hope. Not this wishful thinking, but this substantial, true hope that is theirs in Jesus Christ. We are not without a future. We have an inheritance in the saints. We, we, we have hope for now, we have an inheritance in the future, and we've been endued with incomparably great power. Hallelujah. What can I compare this power to? 
nothing. It's incomparable, right? Isn't that what the word incomparable means? Not comparable. I, I, Paul is saying, you have incomparably great power. See, I, this is where my Christian faith early on almost disintegrated. I got saved, knew I was going to heaven, but the in-between part, saved to heaven, it just wasn't working for me. You know, I, I really, I was not, it, I was doing everything right, so to speak. I was living the Christian life as dictated. I was going to church. I was giving away my life. I was living a good moral life. I was a good Baptist boy, and I was just miserable in my pursuit of this Christian. I've talked about this before. Why? Because somehow I missed this. I missed that I've got hope, I've got an inheritance, and I've got the incomparably great power of God at work in my life. What is this power like? This power that's at work within me. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when? What? Raised him from the dead. Seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. The resurrection, ascension power of Christ is at work within you, and it's incomparable. There's nothing else you can compare it to. The greatest demonstration of the power of God was when he raised Jesus from the dead, and that power is in you and me. And Paul says, may your eyes be open so that you can know this power that's at work within you. Hallelujah. Pray, pray that our eyes would be open. Here's what I want you to see, though. That death to life is at work within you now. And that's powerful. Incredibly powerful. Incomparably powerful. If you're waiting for something else from God before you step out, I would say what Paul is saying is there's nothing else to compare to what God has already given you. Nothing. What you need instead is that the eyes of your heart would be open to know what you've been given. Quit waiting. Start praying. Let God's power released within you. But I also want you to see this. No physical resurrection from the dead. No incomparably great power. In other words, we're wasting our time. If there's no death to life, there's no death to life for me spiritually, there's no power of God at work within me, this is just all a bunch of hooey without the physical resurrection of Christ. Not only that, look what he goes on and says, and God placed all things under his feet. Well, that makes sense. He's Jesus. He's God. And appointed him to be head over everything. Why? For the church. Well, listen to this. Which is his body, and this is where we get our name, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The fullness of God. We are the body of Christ. Why? Because we have the resurrection power of God at work within us. Yes. 
This, this should change everything for us. This should quit, we should quit living the mediocre Christian life. The I hope I make it without screwing up too badly Christian life. The I got to do more or God's going to get mad at me Christian life. There's so many Christian lives that we lead outside of the resurrection. Here's all I got. I got the resurrection power of God at work within me. I say that's all I got, but let me tell you, there's nothing else that compares to it. Nothing. I can go to college seminary anywhere I want to go for the rest of my life, learn every truth of mankind, and still not be as powerful as I am today because of the resurrection power of God that's within me. I can go out and earn as much money as the richest man you can ever think of and still not be more powerful than I am in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. This should excite us to say, when I go to work, when I go to school, when I go home, I have life emanating from me. Not my life, his life at work within me. In this, what I want us to see, just for a moment, I'm just going to bring up three truths that I think come from this. Because we too often are dwelling in the negative, the bad, the tough. You know, you may be saying, yeah, I've got incomparably great power, but you you don't know my wife. It's tough to be the Christian in the home with her or him or them. Oh, Lord, these children you gave me. How am I going to make it? Where's that incomparable? Well, these coworkers, this job, the, my own weakness, my own struggles. I think God addresses all of these. So pretty quick, I'm going to run you through three of these. First point is this. Humiliation, humiliation brings exaltation. Just a little theological point. How were things created? Out of chaos, but who did it? According to Colossians, it said, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him, and he sustains everything by his powerful word. He, he created, he sustains. Creator, sustainer, who? Jesus. Jesus, God, the Trinity, we're all, I know we all struggle. I'm not going to get into Trinitarian theology right now because we'd spend the next, yeah, eternity deciphering what that means. Here's my point, though. Jesus wasn't like some lesser God who came to earth. That's Gnosticism, by the way. Jesus was fully God and fully man. To come to earth, he had to humble himself, according to Philippians. He had to humble himself to leave the throne. The creator through whom things were created, through whom things were sustained, had to humble himself to leave earth. And he humiliated himself by going to the cross. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. His humbling, because he humbled himself, because he humiliated himself and went to the cross, God has raised him up and given him the name that is above every name. The Father has. Here's the deal that's a kicker for me, and I, I, you know, theologically, my mind blows the circuit at some point. He was already the creator and sustainer. How much more exalted can you be? Right? I mean, seems like a pretty high task to me, high calling to me, but it's undeniable now because of what he did by humbling himself and humiliating himself and going to the cross we used to have over there where I always point. It's not there right now. Humbled, humiliated himself, and as a result is exalted. A number of passages speak of this humiliation of Christ. Peter says it in the day of Pentecost sermon. He said, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified Lord and Christ. Now, we run through those terms, Lord and Christ, but they mean exalted. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the anointed one. That, in turn, brings us to us. Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, he's talking about himself, but he's also talking to his disciples. He's talking to his followers. He's saying, you can't exalt yourself. Instead, be humble. Because in humility, in, in going lower, you'll go higher, so to speak. Because it's God's power that is at work within us. By the way, this is a whole sidetrack, but you could go down this road if you want to and just think about it and study it this week. If I'm humiliated and then because of my humbling myself, I'm exalted, who still gets all the glory? God does. Why? Because everybody knows that's where I would be. But God has lifted me up. As a result, all glory still goes to his name. It's a great economy, the spiritual economy of God that it still brings him the glory. Because that's what really matters, not people looking at me, but rather people looking at the God in me, the resurrection power of God in me that changes them. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's almighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Your glorious inheritance in the saints, the power of God. So humiliation brings exaltation. The other, another truth I would like for you to see is this, that tragedy brings opportunity. Tragedy brings opportunity. Again, back in this Ephesians passage, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exert in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The tragedy, the crucifixion, brings the opportunity for resurrection, right? Tragedy brings opportunity. You may think, and a lot of people think, tragedy is just tragedy. It's bad, and it is bad. But there's something about tragedy 
in the sinful world and the nature of things that are going on that will present opportunities for those who are walking in resurrection life. Jesus, in uh, the Olivet, one of the, the Olivet Discourse, where he's talking about the coming and the future, he, he talks about probably what we're living in now, <laughs> who knows. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes. We're seeing that. And nations. I mean, it all keeps going. It keeps growing. I'm not going to dwell on second coming stuff, eschatology. But there will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before that, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Tragedy, arresting, persecution, bad things, horrible things. Hey, good news. This is your opportunity. So you can see tragedy as just tragedy, or you can see it as every moment of every day God giving you the opportunity to bear witness of the resurrection life within you. You may think to yourself, yeah, well, what if I go to work tomorrow and I get fired? Praise God. <laughs> you see, we think of circumstances as good and bad, and we label bad as a moral kind of failing or circumstance. We think the opportunities present themselves in the good, but really in God's economy, the best opportunities are in the tragedies of life because that's where the death to resurrection, the resurrection power of Christ is at work within you. C.S. Lewis says this, we ought to give thanks for all fortune. It's good because it's good, if bad because it works in us patience, humility, and the contempt of this world and the hope of our eternal country. God is at work. Many examples of this. In a, in a book called The One Minute Uplift, uh, Rick Izzell says, the pages of history are lined with individuals encountering negative setbacks only to make something positive out of them. They are better for it in many cases, so are we. These are just examples of people who took really negative situations and it became something positive. We know, we know Thomas Edison, one of the greatest inventors of all time. When he was a boy, uh, he was either boxed in the ears or grabbed by the ears, catching a train. The, the, the stories go on and on. Anyway, it caused entire deafness in one ear and partial deafness, we think, in another. Edison said his deafness contributed to his ability to focus that he could put aside outside stuff because he couldn't hear it, really, and he could focus on what he was doing, and therefore it led him to be able to do incredible inventions. Victor Hugo was one of the greatest authors of France. During the Napoleonic era, he's exiled. He has to leave France. While in exile, he really writes his greatest literary masterpieces, including uh, Les Miserables. And when he comes back after Napoleon falls to great acclaim, he says, why couldn't I have been exiled earlier? 
Helen Keller, as we know, was born blind and deaf. Helen Keller said this. She said, I thank God for my obstacles, for through them I have found myself, my work, and my God. George Frederick Handel was a German who was living in London. He's broke. His health is bad. He's he's depressed. Things are horrible for him. He has no resources. He goes into his room and says, I'm just going to write music. And for 24 days straight, he writes the Messiah. In 24 days. A work that takes two and a half to three hours easily to perform is considered one of the greatest, it is considered the greatest oratorios of all time, much less one of the greatest pieces of music of all time. And just think about this, English is not his first language. He's German. Misplaced musician and in 24 days writes the Hallelujah Chorus. I couldn't even write the Hallelujah Chorus. I couldn't even copy it in 24 days much less all the orchestration in the, it's unbelievable. He used the negative of that situation for great opportunity. Sometimes the biggest tragedies will present the biggest opportunities. We have the resurrection power. God raised Jesus from the dead. He can raise our dead circumstances to life and bring life around us. Please. If you're here today and you're going through a horrible time, I'm not trying to minimize the horror and pain of your situation. But at the same time, I'm encouraging you to let the eyes of your heart be opened. You can know the hope to which he's called you, your glorious inheritance in the saints, and that incomparably great power. Because it's presenting you with opportunities. The enemy wants you to revel in your misery. Instead... Rejoice in your opportunities. That'll preach. That's really good. <laughs> obedience, brings, obedience brings blessings. I'm reading through my Bible again this year and in Deuteronomy, which I'm just finishing, praise God, because um, that means I've gotten through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and I'm pressing on, but I love Deuteronomy. And in this time Moses gathers the people and says, See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. There's blessing in obedience. Now, we may say, oh, but that's Old Testament. That's law stuff. That blessing in obedience. Jesus says, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. Now, here's what's critical. We see it like this a lot of times. If, if, if I obey his commands, then I am in his love. But the way Jesus frames it is, if you're in my love, you'll obey my commands. And by the way, when you obey my commands, more blessings. It's, it, it's not that we're not supposed to be obedient. Sometimes we fall in the ditch of, oh, I'm, I'm, I don't want no legalism in my world. Well, yeah, I'm with you. I don't want no legalism in my world either. But I do want the love of Christ manifest in me obeying him so that I can continue to walk in the blessings of the Lord and receive greater love. Again, going back to point two doesn't mean everything's going to go great. You, you, You will have troubles. In this world, you will have 
prosperity, health, wealth, wonder. No, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. How did he overcome? The resurrection power. The resurrection is his overcoming. And ours as well. He tells us, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and doing what? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Obedience brings blessing. It's part of the resurrection. Why did Jesus go to the cross in the first place? Out of obedience. He did what the Father told him to do. And as a matter of fact, he says, I can only do what I see the Father doing. I can only say what the Father says to me. Jesus' entire life was lived in relationship with the Father and obedience to his word. We, we balk at the word commands. But basically, a command is the word of the Lord. Any word of the Lord is a command, right? So anytime God speaks and we obey, I believe we'll be walking into blessing. And it all comes... These truths, I believe, are part of the resurrection power. Humiliation will bring exaltation. If we humble ourselves, tragedy will bring opportunity and obedience will bring blessing. Let the resurrection power of God be at work within you today. Jeremy Bentham was the father philosophical father of modern utilitarianism. Utilitarianism was a philosophy. It sounds like utilitarian, right? <laughs> Thank you. I want to make sure you're still hanging in there. Utilitarianism is a philosophy that basically says the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Whatever is the greatest good for the greatest number of people, that's what we fall. Did anybody watch Star Trek? The needs of the many out in that way, the needs of the one... Spock's dying in this. That's utilitarianism. And one of the ironies of fate, or really, you don't really follow your own philosophy. Jeremy Bentham died in 1832 in London. He was a person who gave to the University College Hospital um, in London, one of its benefactors. And one of the things he benefacted to them is that a word? Benefacted? But one of the things you, you look at me like, hey, he knows a lot of words. He it must be one he knows. I don't know. So anyway, one of the things he gave to the hospital was himself when he died. He said, I'm going to leave you my money, but I'm also going to leave you me. And so he was dissected. But as part of his will, he said, after I'm dissected, after you take me apart and examine you, I, I want you to put me back together. And then I want you to put me in a display case. And then when there's a board meeting, I want you to wheel me out, and then you can say, Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. <laughs> You're like, that is sick. Well, they did it. Here's Jeremy Bentham right here. Jeremy Bentham, this is taken like 10 years ago. Uh, by the way, they could put everything back together. You, I'm going to gross you out. This is the end of the sermon. You're going to go to lunch after this. Um, they could put them all back together except for his head. 
So the head is waxed, but his head is on the floor. You see it there? That's his skull. That's his real skull there on the floor. You're like, this is so... Actually, his, that whole thing, him, they, they quit doing this at board meetings. They don't do it anymore. They wheel him out. Instead, they just have him in a display case in the foyer of the college. You just walk. Hey, Jeremy. Here's the idea. When you're dead, you're dead. I don't, you know, it really doesn't matter. They can stuff you and they can prop you up. They can make you look like the antlers on the wall or the puppy dog that somebody had done so they can keep, you know, a little Fido around. But, you know, Fido's dead. He's dead, dead. There's nothing he can do. Jeremy Bentham, utilitarianism. It's ironic to him that he would make people do this. Who's happy about seeing dead Jeremy every day you go through the wall, the, the foyer? You have no ability to bring yourself back to life. Thanks, Chase, for hanging in there with me, buddy. You have no ability to bring yourself back to life. None. But God does. And the greatest power, greatest demonstration of the power of God is that he raised you. Spiritually, and by the way, one day physically as well. When Christ returns, we're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. The resurrect, death to life. People, I know the resurrection for many people is this, oh yeah, we've heard a million sermons on the resurrection. But it is so rich that Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be open that you'll know the power of God that's at work within you. That power is like The demonstration of power is like when he raised Jesus from the dead. It's at work within you. It's at work within me. May our eyes be open to see how it changes everything. Lord, I pray this morning that your resurrection power would be manifest in this place in our lives. God, forgive us where too often we go through this day-by-day existence focusing on our tragedies, focusing on our lack focusing on even on our own disobedience. And instead, Lord, I pray that we would know the hope to which we've been called, our glorious inheritance in the saints, and the incomparably great power of God that's at work within us. Lord, I pray that the church, known as fullness, would realize that with Jesus as the head, we are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We have the power of God flowing in us, through us, and to the world around us. May we no longer act as defeated, but may we walk in victory. Lord, I pray today also, if there's anyone here today, that the the story of the resurrection and the story of Jesus is merely a story, a narrative, that they would receive the objective truth that you are alive. And they would receive you as the one who leads their life and forgives their sins. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.